Amen. You may be seated. Well, I'm Alan McBrayer, the executive pastor here at Bayou City Fellowship Tomball. Uh, Kevin is still out on vacation. He'll be back next week. We're looking forward to that. But uh, this morning, I'm looking forward to this. Now, I just want to make a disclaimer here real quickly. Um, this is not an audition for elder, in case you were wondering. Okay? So don't send any notes to Kevin about this, how this goes, right? Uh, seriously, this was scheduled ahead of time, but uh, before that all came up. But uh, this morning, we're going to be continuing our series in Kings and Prophets, and through the summer, we've been walking through some of the various kings in Israel and in Judah, and uh, we have been seeing mostly the bad things that they've done. Uh, we've seen some good things that they've done as well. But sometimes we look at the Old Testament and all of that stuff way back then, and we think that doesn't really relate to our lives. But the truth is, uh, as human beings, uh, what they did relates to us because we also are human beings, and uh, we see so many parallels. Well, this morning, we have come to the place where we're going to be talking about the last king of Israel the last king of Israel. And after that, their nation fell apart. That part of the kingdom never got back together again. And the person who officiated the funeral, so to speak, was named King Hosea. But we're also going to look at the prophet that paralleled King Hosea, who is the prophet Hosea. Okay? So we're talking about Hosea and Hosea today. Got that? There'll be a quiz on this after it's over, all right? So close, but not the same person. So don't get confused about it, because really that is one of the reasons why we have a hard time reading all through the Bible is because it, it does seem confusing, especially in that part. But this is such an important time in the life of Israel that we're going to look at today. It's really the turning point in their story, because as I said, after this, they no longer existed the southern kingdom of Judah, where Jerusalem was, that continued to exist, and God continued to care for them, but he allowed Israel, the ten northern uh, tribes, he allowed them to go off into deportation and captivity, which we'll talk more about that. This is actually uh, a story of a nation that existed for over 200 plus years. The northern kingdom began about 935 B.C., and it ended in 722 B.C., a little bit over 200 years. And so we want to know what happened. Well, the, the great thing about it is God tells us what happened, and so we don't have to wonder why this took place. So if you want to turn to your Bibles, uh, in your Bibles, to 2 Kings 17, you might be able to look it up faster on your phone, but 2 Kings 17, and we're going to see the story of what happened there in Israel's history when they finally came to an end. Have you ever had one of those scary moments driving when all of a sudden you look at your clock on your dashboard and 30 minutes have passed and you don't remember driving for those 30 minutes? And at that moment, I tend to want to say, thank you, God, <laughs> because I could have been dead. And, uh, but those things happen. You wonder, how did I get here? But on a much larger scale, this happens in our lives. There's times when our lives fall apart. 
There's times when our lives, as they say in recovery, they hit bottom. And we don't know how we actually got there. This happens in our lives. But we're, we're very intrigued to find out in other people's lives, how could that possibly happen? Historically, uh, the book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, kind of reminds me of our interest in these things. Because the Roman Empire, when it existed, was about a thousand-year tenure. And it was a worldwide empire. empire. But after those thousand years, somehow the Roman Empire fell apart. And it was sacked by the, by the Mongolian hordes that came from the north, and Rome fell somewhere in the mid-400s A.D. The interesting thing to me is The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire is a book written by Edward Gibbons. It is six volumes, and it's very tedious reading. I was a history major in college. And so when you have to read these kind of things, you're thinking, why did I adopt that major in college? There's several reasons, but I thought it was probably the easiest one. (laughs) It's actually one of the reasons I did that. But it's so tedious, and yet The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire has gone through six printings, if you can imagine that. Because people want to know, how could an empire like Rome, how could it fall? People want to know, how could that happen? Because I think they wonder, could it happen to me? Could it happen to us? I've always been intrigued by this quote. Uh, a, F- a French diplomat in the 1800s named Alexis de Tocqueville is credited with this quotation, although there's some debate about that. But he said this, and you may have heard it before. A democracy can exist as a per- cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the voters discover that they can vote themselves largess or money from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates promising the most benefits from the public treasury with the result that a democracy always collapses over loose fiscal policy. And then a dictatorship follows. Kind of sounds possible, doesn't it, right? Because we all love a handout. Now, well, this is what people say they don't, but somebody hands you some money, you kind of enjoy that. Well, this is what de Tocqueville was saying. He says, the amount of wealth in America is really amazing. This is like 1835. And he wrote this book about it, Democracy in America, and he was impressed with that wealth. But he said, here's what's going to happen. As soon as they figure out that they can vote themselves money from the public treasury, gradually it's going to collapse because of loose fiscal policy. Maybe a prophetic word for our time. We hope not. But the truth is, this can happen to anyone. It can happen to any nation. And the reason we don't notice it is because usually it happens slowly. Usually there's things going on in our lives even right now, that we know that if we don't get a grip on that, we don't get a handle on that, that's going to lead to some problems. And yet, because we kind of keep figuring out ways to manage it, we don't worry about it too much. Until that day when suddenly the house of cards falls. And that's where we don't want to get. God is so gracious. He shows us why it happened to Israel And he shows us that if a man doesn't take heed to those things, he can fall as well, and a nation can too. 
The title of the message today is When Life Falls Apart. I'm hoping that nobody in this room, I'm hoping your life is not falling apart. But it may be. You come to church and you think everybody looks like they got it together. They're so, you know, everything's in such good shape in everybody's lives. And my life is just like, oh my gosh, I've got to change something. Maybe you're there. Maybe you're not there. Maybe you are like, eh, a few things, like I said, need to get a grip on, and then we'll be okay. And I hope that you do have it all together here today. But the reality is we're all dealing with something. With something. Sometimes things in our lives, when life falls apart, when we hit bottom, sometimes it's because things happen to us. Like the Great Recession in 2008. People's lives fell apart then because they had their trust in money and they depended on it and they thought everything would be great and it fell apart. And then many things happened as a result of that in people's lives. And in Israel, what we're going to look at today, in Israel there were many things going on in Israel's existence for the 200 plus years that they existed that led to their final downfall and demise. The reality is, is what happened in Israel is what can happen to all of us. The main problem that they had was the problem of idolatry. It seems like every week that we've been up here, whether it's Kevin or whether it was Eric or whether it was AK or someone else, that we've been talking about idolatry. You know, I was asking my wife this week, do you think people are tired of hearing about idolatry? Yeah, I know I am, okay? But the reality is idolatry happens, but we just don't call it that today. We have false gods, and we just don't call it that today, but we do have things that we depend on. We call them dependencies. We call them addictions. We call them things that we are attached to, attachments, whatever it may be. And those are the very things that will bring us down. And the statement that I kind of summarize it with is this, is when we follow false gods instead of the one true God, When we follow false gods instead of the one true God, our lives will fall apart. It may not be overnight. It may take a while. It may be over a period of time in our life. Or it may be for most of our adult life, and it finally happens. In those moments, it's it's very devastating and very sad. But in those moments, that's when we want to find out, how could this happen to me? The time to deal with it is not when that happens. The time to deal with it is way before that happens, when those trends start in our lives. So let's see what God has to say about this. In 2 Kings 17, what he says in verses 1 through 6, he tells us this, and it should be on the screen. 2 Kings 17, 1 through 6. Okay. In the twelfth year of Judah's king Ahaz, Hoshea, son of Elah, became king over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned nine years. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, but not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. King Shalmaneser of Assyria attacked him, and Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Israel, Assyria, caught Hoshea in a conspiracy. Hosea, Hosea had sent envoys to So, king of Egypt, and had not paid tribute to the king of Assyria as in previous years. Therefore, the king of Assyria arrested him and put him in prison 
And then the king of Assyria invaded the whole land, marched up to Samaria, which was the capital, and besieged it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria. He deported the Israelites to Assyria and settled them in Halah, along the Habor, Gozans River, and in the cities of the Medes. Now, that's a lot of politics from way back then that we don't really care about. But here's the summary of what happened. Hosea had come to power. He was the last of 19 kings in Israel. In Judah, which was the southern kingdom where Jerusalem was, the beginning of the kingdom of all of Israel, all 12 tribes, they had some good kings. But in Israel in the north, there was not one good king. In fact, out of the 19 kings that they had, nine of them came to the throne by assassination. Would have made a good murder mystery, a good political mystery today. That's the kind of kings that they were. It's interesting that it says about Hosea, he was evil like the kings before him, but not as evil. You know, he, he wasn't quite, and I think really what it means is, is that his focus was not on building false gods and idols like the other kings did, because he had bigger fish to fry. He could see that the kingdom of Israel had some serious problems, and it was falling. And he could, he could see that Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, which was the worldwide empire at that time, he could see that he was about to attack, and sure enough, he did, and he subjugated Israel and made them pay tribute to them. But in the sixth year, all of a sudden, Hosea thought he had an idea. I think I'll defect and go off to Egypt. Because what happened in Assyria was they had a transition in kings. And a new king, Sargon, came to power. It doesn't say it here, but historians tell us. And so he thought, well, maybe he's not paying attention in his transition, and I can go to another king, to another place to get some help. So he goes to Egypt, but guess what? Immediately, Sargon says, nope, you're not doing that. And so he goes and gets him, imprisons him, and then lays siege to Israel for three years, to Samaria, the capital of Israel. So what difference does all that make? Well, the bottom line is, is that Hosea was just like all the other kings in Israel. He thought he had it figured out. He thought he had it under control. And his best efforts though, didn't work. And so this is what we see in the, in the passage this week, is that the conditions of the fall was that no matter what this king, Hosea, did, it wasn't going to work. Because the reality is, is that there was this big, bad empire called Assyria, actually known as the cruelest empire and kingdom that had existed on the planet until that point. They would actually put hooks in people's noses and dragged them off to Assyria when they conquered them. That's the kind of place that it was. By the way, that's why Jonah didn't want to see them repent, because they were such a cruel people. But this is what happened to them. And so Hosea thought he could figure it out, but he couldn't. Now, in our lives, we have the same kind of conditions when our lives fall apart. We think this is happening, we see a little crack in the wall, we see a little crumble, and we think we can do something about that. We muster up our best resources. Maybe we get some people around us that can help us. Maybe we figure out a way that we can make everything better. But at some point, at some point, we come to this place 
like the first step in 12 steps says, which is we realize that we are powerless over the problems or our addiction in that case. We are powerless over these problems that we have, and our lives have become unmanageable. And when that happens, what we have to do is we have to say, okay, this is where I am. It's time to do something about it. I would encourage us all today to not wait till that point, but to go ahead and deal with those cracks in the wall that you see right now. So let's look at the cause of the fall. What was it that actually, what actually caused Israel to fall? We see in verses 7 through 20, and we're just going to read the first uh, 7 through 12 here at first, but we see that God, in His grace... He told them why it happened. He told them why it happened after it happened because he wanted us to know why it happened before it happens to us. You see, God is wanting us to understand this. And here's what he says. This disaster happened because the people of Israel sinned against the Lord their God. By the way, the Lord their God who had brought them out of the land of Egypt from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and because they worshiped other gods... They lived according to the customs of the nations that the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites and according to what the kings of Israel did. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. And here comes the idols. They built high places in all their towns from the watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves sacred pillars and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every green tree. They burned incense there on all the high places just like the nations that the Lord had driven out before them just like he had done to them. They, they did evil things, angering the Lord. They served idols, although the Lord had told them, you must not do this. They did the very things that God had told them not to do. The cause of the fall was, first of all, they sinned against the Lord their God. The very Lord their God who had liberated them from Egypt after 400 years of captivity the God that had taken care of them, that had chosen them of all the nations on the earth to be their, his special people. They sinned against him. Usually when it says sin, it's talking about not just sins against God, but it's also talking about those sins that we do to other people. Because there's always a connection between violating the first three commandments which relate to God, to have no other gods before me, to not make idols, and to not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And then the next seven commandments, which deal with the people around us. When we don't love God, we then mistreat others. But the second area that caused the fall, which he spends a lot more time on, the one that is writing this history by the Holy Spirit, he says it's because of idolatry. It's because they worshiped other gods. If you were here last week, A.K. referred to the fact that John Calvin, the reformer from the 16th century, he made this statement, the human heart is a perpetual factory that makes idols. That's what the human heart does, is it makes idols. It seems like a crazy thing to do when you have the true God that you can look up in the heavens and realize we didn't get here by accident. We are made in the image of a personal being, even if you don't know who that is. When you see all of the evidence, yet you would exchange that glory for 
the glory of mortal human beings or birds, animals, reptiles, whatever it may be. It doesn't seem to make sense, but that's what human beings do. We make idols in our lives and in our hearts. My wife Sarah and I went to India on a mission trip in 2019. We went into the slums every day. And half of Mumbai is slums, the other half, and it's a huge, huge city. Half of it's slums, and the other half is, is a little bit higher than that on the scale of, of wealth or poverty. Every one of those little one-room apartments, those slums that we went into, almost every one of those had a shrine to a false god. Somewhere in that room, sometimes it would be covered by a little divider, but there would be a shrine because even though some of them would claim that they actually knew Jesus, they also were Hindu by background, the slums that we went into. Some of them were Islamic, but we were in the, the Hindu slums. And uh, so in those places, they would have the shrine to cover their bases. Uh, to me, one, one of the really just doesn't make sense to me, nonsensical things is one of the main gods in the Hindu religion is Ganesh. Ganesh is the elephant god. Literally, they worship a picture of, a, of an elephant with a big snout, okay? This is who they worship because Ganesh is the Hindu god of beginnings who removes obstacles. Okay, so this is what you want, right? You want a god that you can worship that will remove obstacles upon command, And so they have the shrine to Ganesh, and even if they know the Lord, they usually will have uh, that shrine along with maybe a cross or something like that. They make idols. Men, human beings, make idols. In the book, Here Are Your Gods by Christopher Wright, he gives us three categories of idols, which may make this a little bit more understandable. The three categories that he identifies are things which impress us. Think American Idol or something like that. Uh, Things that impress us, things that we fear, and things that we need. So in other words, if we see something that really impresses us, whatever that may be, we just watch the Olympics. We think, if we can just get a little bit of that, then our lives will be okay. And so people begin to imitate celebrities. They begin to do the same workouts that celebrities do. They begin to have the same nutrition that, you know, on and on. Things that impress us, or it could be like things in nature that impress us. And people would make idols out of that in other generations. But things that we fear, you look at things that you are afraid of, and so you figure out some idol that can protect you from that one thing that you are afraid of. And we don't make the physical idols like they used to, but we have the physical idols that represent those things that protect us. For example, we have the status symbols that make us feel like we have enough money that we're secure so that something like 2008 won't happen to us. It might have happened to them, but we're smarter than that. It won't happen to us. And then we have things that we need I would love to have that. If I just had that relationship, if I just had that thing in my life, if I just had that degree, none of those things are bad. But if I just had that in my life, 
then I would be okay. But the truth is, those things don't do anything for you because they are not living things. They have no power except for the power that you give it. And so we try to harness the power of all those things that impress us or scare us, and we try to figure out the formulas of how to get what we need from those things that we need, that we set up idols. And in so doing, we do it all so that we won't have to depend upon God. We could actually just depend on God and trust Him, and those things would come our way according to His will. But that's really not okay. In fact, sometimes we turn God Himself in our minds, we turn Him into an idol. I heard this quite a while back, but there's a book written in 2003 called Cat and Dog Theology. It's really a fun book, and I don't know whether you like cats or whether you like dogs, okay, but uh, we're not going to go there, so let's, let's don't get into that part. But here's what they said in that book, okay, about cat and dog theology. A dog says, you pet me, you feed me, you shelter me, you love me, you must be God. A cat says, you pet me, you feed me, you shelter me, you love me. I must be God. (laughs) Now, that's my relationship with most cats, okay? (laughs) I'm I'm just going to say, I'm allergic to them too, so I've got an excuse, right? Uh, But but I have to say, uh, Bob and Terry Clark have got this really great cat that I don't have that relationship with, okay? So if you see them and you're over at their house, that's really a, a really a sweet cat. But, but cats are like that. It's like they get all of that attention. They feel like they must be God. This is what we feel about God, right, sometimes. We're thinking, God, you do this for me. God, you do this for me. God, you give, 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 give me. Give. And people say like, he, he's going to do all this for me. I must be God. And we would never say that. But that's sometimes what we do. You see, the real problem is, the real problem is our self-centeredness. It's who we are. It's what we want. We are the center of the universe in our minds. But it's really just the temptation that Satan gave to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. What he said to them was, you're not going to die when you eat that fruit. God knows in the day that you eat that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that you're going to become like God, knowing good and evil. You know, I've thought a lot about that. You probably have too. What's wrong with knowing good and evil? It sounds like a good thing. Well, the problem is Satan was really tempting them to get God out of their lives. You don't have to depend on God if you know what's best for you. You can just do it for yourself and forget God. Why wait on God? Why let Him pull all the strings? Why let Him be God? You can be God's yourself. This is what He was saying. And so what we do is because we become the center of the universe, we get more and more gods in our lives, and rather than becoming self-determining and free, We get bound up more and more and more by what those gods require of us. And so really, our problem is we don't become free at all. We become slaves. And that's exactly what Jesus said. He says, whatever a man is enslaved by is his God. Whatever sin a man is trapped in is what he's enslaved to.
And so we're really not free at all. And I've wondered a lot about why do we do this? Because the truth is, we are so small compared to the universe. If God were to unleash the animal kingdom on us, just think about that. Most animals come out at night, people come out in the day. You read the Psalms. I just read Psalm 104 this morning. It was saying, I was thinking, yeah, God set it up so that those wild animals wouldn't attack us during the day because they come out at night. They just deal with each other, right? That's kind of what happens. This, this week, uh, on, on Monday this week, we discovered that we had two black widows on a gate that was right by our garage, right by the door where we go in. Now, I'm, uh, I'm getting pretty old. Uh, I've never seen a black widow I've seen pictures of black widows. These two black widows were real. Looked them up. Actually, my wife looked them up. Their venom is as bad as the venom of snakes. These things are dangerous. Brown recluse, you know, black widow. And so, but you know what kills them is vinegar and water. Okay, just so you know, just a little tip, a little hack there. Uh, but, uh, but, but here's the thing about it. I was thinking in that moment, I think I'm so big. All I had to do was to accidentally put my finger or my hand in the little hinge of the gate where those things were hiding, and I could have been bitten, unsuspecting, and I wouldn't be up here this morning. Think about it. Our lives are so fragile. We are so small. The sun, the moon, the waves, the tidal waves, we're so, you know, we're, we're sorry about what happened in Haiti, the earthquake. Those things can happen to us at any time. We're not that big. And so rather than turning to God for the protection, we want to be independent. We want to determine our own life. And so we make all of our own idols. We try to protect ourselves from those things, but we really can't. It's really an illusion. So this is what God says. He says, you will have no other gods before me. He doesn't say that just because he wants to be the only one. He says it for two reasons. One is because he is the only one. But the second one is because he wants to protect us. Because whenever you make other gods, it never works. Now, the interesting thing is about this verse. In seminary many years ago, Dr. Garland, David Garland, was my Hebrew professor. I don't know Hebrew real well. I know a few Jewish people, but I don't know Hebrew real well. And uh, I remember that the first thing that we translated was the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. And he said, men and women, when you look at this, be sure you look at the little preposition before me. You shall have no other gods before me. He says, notice that, and I'll just give you this one clue, and then you're going to get to do the rest of the Ten Commandments and bring it back the next time we met. It doesn't say, you shall have no other gods before me. It says, you shall have no other gods besides me. Here's what God was saying to Israel. Because it was rampant in the ancient world to have as many gods as you possibly could, except you had your one national God. What he was saying to Israel was, there is only one God, and that's me. There are no other gods. I don't want to be before all the other gods. I don't be like first, and then you can rank the rest of them below that just so you get God first. He's saying, I don't want you to have any other gods. I just want you to have me as your God. And really, that was just monumental in the ancient world because all 
different religions of the ancient world were polytheistic instead of monotheistic. They all had multiple gods to cover every possible situation that they could encounter in life. But the true God says, have no other gods besides me, because I am the only true God. And so what we need to do, we need to look at all those other things that we depend on, and we need to submit them to the true God, the one true God who's been revealed in Jesus Christ, and then give those things to him. I want you to notice the third action that they had that caused the fall. They sinned against God. They were engaged in rampant idolatry. It says in verses 8 and 11 that they did something else. In verse 8, it says, The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. They built high places in all their towns and watchtowers and fortified cities. And the verse just before them, sorry, I misread that. They lived according to the customs of the nations that the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites and before the kings of Israel. They lived according to the customs of the nations. Now, what this is saying is not only did they have idolatry, but they had idolatry because the nations around them had idolatry. This is what would happen. This is so crazy. They would go and defeat a nation in war, and they would see the idols that they had, and they would bring their idols back with them so they could worship them too. They had just defeated that, that bunch of idols, that God, right? And yet they brought them back so they could also worship them too. The human heart is an idol-making factory, as we, we heard. But what we do today is not a lot different. What we do today is we let the world squeeze us into its mold, as uh, an old translation of Romans 12, 2 says. We let the world squeeze us into its mold, and then we begin to think like the world thinks. We begin to adopt the understanding, the world viewpoint that the world out there has. And so as a result, we begin to worship the gods that the world has, even though they aren't real. But we allow this to happen. And then, not only did they have conformity to the world around them, but they also were very stubborn. It says in 13 through 15, Got to find 13. Still the Lord warned Israel and Judah through every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commands and statutes according to the whole law I commanded your ancestors and sent to you through my servants the prophets. But they would not listen. Instead, they became obstinate like their ancestors who did not believe the Lord their God. They rejected his statutes and his covenant he had made with their ancestors and the warnings he had given them. They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. Following the surrounding nations, the Lord had commanded them not to imitate. They became obstinate. They became stubborn. Now, I know this doesn't apply to you, but I'm like that, okay? Hey, I know what you're saying. I see your lips moving, but I ain't going to listen to it. You know why? Because I want to do what I want to do, and I don't want you to tell me I can't do it. And so this is what happens. This is always what happens. And so Israel, they fell into idolatry and ultimately fell as a nation, not because God didn't warn them. They did it because they refused to listen to what God had said to them. You know, it's kind of like that thing with kids and parents. 
Kids never want to listen to their parents after a while. Why? Because they want to do what they want to do. Hey, I was a kid. Okay. I don't want the government telling me what to do because I want to do what I want to do. I don't want some authority figure telling me what to do because I want to do what I want to do. Whether they're wrong or right, that's not the issue. But we don't want to submit to God because we want to be in charge. And that's what Satan tempted us with. And so the first reason they fell was because of their actions. All of those things, their sin, their idolatry, their conformity to the world around them, their stubbornness and refusal to listen to the prophets. But the other reason, and sometimes we don't talk about this, the other reason they fell was because of God's anger. God wasn't just an innocent bystander. When God was watching them do this, God had called them out of the world to be his people many, many years before that with Abraham in 1800. 1800 all the way to 700. For 1100 years, God had been dealing with these people. And they had always been this way. And yet God never gave up on them. But he did get angry because God doesn't want us to sin. You hear that? God doesn't want us to sin. He doesn't want us to sin because it violates his character, but he also doesn't want us to do this because it hurts us, and he loves us. And really, it is the best thing for us to follow God. And so it says in verses 18 to 20, therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel, and he removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah remained Then in verse 20, the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel, punished them, handing them over to the plunderers until he had banished them from his presence. I want to hasten to add that that wasn't the end of the story. God did give them a way back, but he was angry with them. And we must not believe that when we sin against God that he's like, hey, I love them, it's okay. No, just like you're a parent. You're not happy when your kids sin. We call it something besides sin, but you're not happy when they disobey you, right? Because you know it's bad for them, and you know that if they don't listen to you, that they're going to get into even more trouble down the road, right? And so God was angry with them. But the beautiful thing about God is he's angry because he is a jealous God. And we don't normally think of jealousy as being a good thing. We think of it as being an unhealthy thing. But God was jealous because he loved these people. He's a jealous God with us. Because he loves us. He wants us for himself because that's who he created us to be with. He created us to be with him. And so he will do whatever is necessary. If it takes wooing us, alluring us back to him, and speaking kindly to us, as it says in in Hosea 2, he will do that. But it also says, a few verses before that in Hosea, it says that he will also wall up our way when we're turning away from him and hedge up our way with thorns so that we can't walk away from him to other gods without it causing a little bit of pain. I know this doesn't sound like fun, right? But we all know it's reality. We know that when we walk away from God, it's a painful thing. C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain said this, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pain 
plants the flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul. When we are rebelling against God, pain plants the flag of truth. This isn't working. This hurts. This is worse for me than it is for God even. It's not working. Pain does not give us a way out. It lets us know that there's a problem, and that's what pain does. So let's don't make any mistake about it. God wants us back, but he loves us so much that he will not let us come back on our own terms. We have to come back on his terms. Last, and we'll close with this, is the cure for the fall. We've been talking about the bad news, right? Let's talk about the good news. The good news is, is that God wants us back. And I'll trust you to read the entire book of Hosea when you leave here today. 14 chapters long. It's the longest minor prophet. But here's the beautiful thing about the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea opens with a living picture of God's relationship with us. With Israel, but with us. And here's the picture that he gives. He tells Hosea to go and marry a harlot, a woman who is a prostitute, and marry her, and she will have three children. He doesn't say that she's going to have three children, but she does have three children, and he names them three names that show the consequences of their actions. He names them Jezreel, which is last week we talked about Jehu and all the blood that he shed in the valley of Jezreel. He names them Jezreel because they're going to have some problems with that the consequence of Jehu's actions. He names them Lo-Ruhamah, which means no pity. And he names them Lo-Ami, which means not my people. God's basically saying, go and marry this prostitute, and she's going to have three kids that speak of the judgment that I'm going to have on you. And then he reveals what he's really meaning by all that. He's revealing that he is the husband, and he is marrying us who are the prostitutes, who have sold ourselves out to do the wrong thing. Imagine this. You're a prophet of God. You think you're holy. And God says, go marry a prostitute. You're like, God, you got to be kidding me. Wait, did I hear God here right? This can't be right. No, go and marry this prostitute because I want to give Israel a living picture of what it looks like for me to be married to Israel, for Israel to be my wife and me to be her husband, and she is a prostitute. She has prostituted herself before all of these gods, and now she's going to get the consequences. And so this is what we do. We prostitute ourselves by having all of these idols. But the good news is, God marries us anyway. God looks at how bad we are. And by the way, most people don't come to church because it makes them feel so bad. You know what I mean? I hear about all this negative stuff. It's like, I don't want to feel that bad about myself. I can go play golf or something else, go fish. That's a lot better than that. I feel good when I do that. But God's not trying to make us feel bad. God's trying to give us the way back is what he's trying to do. He's saying that what you are doing is hurting me more than it's hurting you. And I want you to know that I will receive you anyway. Immediately after he gives this judgment, he says, and yet... And he says it like this. He says, Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said, You are not my people, it will be said to them, You are the sons of the living God. 
I say to your brothers, Emmy, and to your sisters, Ruhama, which means you are pitied, and I do have compassion on you, and you are my people. God always has a way back. Yes, when we follow false gods, our lives will fall apart. But when we return to God and repent, he has a way back. And this is what it concludes the book of Hosea with, is God's plan. And basically, it's a three-part plan. In Hosea 14:1, he says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for your sin has been your downfall. Return to the Lord and repent. Say to him, completely forgive our iniquity. Accept our penitential prayer that we may offer the praise of our lips as sacrificial bulls. Assyria cannot save us. We will not ride war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. For you only will show compassion to orphan Israel. And then he says, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely, for my anger will turn away from them. See, this is what God says. You can come back to me. The good news is, we can repent today. But repenting doesn't just mean admitting you were wrong. That's a good thing, but admitting you're wrong is not enough. When you admit you're wrong, if you really want to come back to God, you turn from the thing that you're doing, but you turn to God. And here is the problem that we have, especially as Christians, but it's true of anyone. If you don't replace that God that you were worshiping with the true God, or whatever it may be, you will always go back to that false God. It's kind of like a rubber band. You'll always snap back to the default setting in your life. And I think that's where we all have a lot of problems, right? We have this problem of, gosh, I can't quit doing that thing. It's because we don't replace what we repented of. We repent of the false gods or that false dependency that we have. But then we have to replace it. And how do you do that? You do that by falling in love with Jesus. You say, well, how do you do that? Well, the way you do that is you spend time with him. The more time you spend with Jesus, and I don't mean just setting aside a quiet time in the morning or having your time of prayer at night or whatever it may be, but throughout the day, as you spend time with the Lord in his word, in prayer, in reflection on him, as you focus on Jesus, you will fall more and more in love with him. And here's the reason why. Because as you get to know someone better, at first you're attracted to them outwardly, but the better you know them, if they're the kind of people that you really love, the more you will be attracted to their character. And that's what happens. I can say that's what's happened in my life with my wife, Sarah. Obviously, I was attracted 43 years ago when we got married, almost 43 years ago, or almost 44 43 years ago when we got married, I was attracted to her. Yes, I was attracted to her heart as well as her outward beauty. But over the years, my attraction has grown more deep in her as her character, as I've seen that. And that's the same thing that happens with all of us as we are married. The better we get to know each other, if we're allowing God to change us, 
the more we are attracted to our hearts, to one another, deeply. And that's what happens with us and the Lord. We cannot change if we are not transformed by Him. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. In other words, when we behold the Lord in the mirror, as we behold Him, as we set our minds on Him, we are transformed into His likeness. Ultimately, when He returns, when we see Him, we will become like Him, for we will see Him as He is, it says in 1 John 3, 1. And so, we will become like Him as we set our heart affections upon Him and spend time with Him. Think of all that He did for us. We must receive it. We must replace it with Him, and then we must receive the restoration that He wants to give to us. This is what Jesus did for us. He did what Hosea is talking about. He rescued us from the world. He freely forgives us. And he doesn't just say it, but he actually does it. You may have read this story last year, heard this story. Bridger Walker, who is a six-year-old at that time, saw a German shepherd charging toward his younger sister. And he got in the way of that German shepherd and saved his younger sister, a six-year-old. A year later, he's still recovering from the injuries he got to his face and to his neck. But when he was asked about his bravery in doing that, he said this, if someone had to die, I thought it should be me. If someone had to die, I thought it should be me. Jesus said, if this sin problem can't be fixed, someone's going to have to do something about it. And if someone's got to die, that's going to be me. And he died for us. He died so that we wouldn't worship those false gods that don't work anyway. He died for us so that we could become all that he wants us to be in him, the person that he created us to be. This message today is for anyone whose life is falling apart or whose lives may be in the process of falling apart. We all struggle with those false gods. The message today is to take stock. What are those things you depend on besides the true God to get you through a day, to make your life have meaning? There's so many things that we could name and list, but you know what that is. Let me encourage you today to get along with God. Ask Him to show you what those things are. Repent of those idols. Repent of those false gods. Replace it. Replace those false gods with an affection on Jesus Spend time with Him. And when you do, you'll replace those idols with the deep love of Jesus. And He will satisfy your deepest desires because we were made for Him. And when we do, the things of earth, as the old song says, the things of earth will fade away in the light of His glory and His grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much today for Your incredible love for us. Lord, it's... It's something we can't see, but it's something we can feel if we allow our hearts to feel it. If we allow ourselves time with you, Lord, we will come to understand how much you really do love us, that you were willing to marry us 
as a prostitute, as a harlot, Lord, as an unfaithful person, you are willing to take us as your bride and be attached to us. Because, Lord, you're working in our lives to bring us to where you want us to be. You died for us. But, Lord, even more than that, you live for us. And we are able to grow into the person that you have called us to be because of your grace and because of your mercy. I pray today, Lord, for each one of us that we would be able to take stock of those false dependencies and gods in our lives. That we would lay them at your feet, Jesus. And that you would transform us. Transform us, Lord, into who you've called us to be. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come down. And as you stand, I'm going to ask you if you have a need in your life. It may be that you realize your life is about to fall apart. And you need someone to pray with you about that. That's not an idle prayer. When we go to the living God and ask Him for help, He gives that to us. And when we agree with it, agree together in prayer about that, God will answer. It may be that this morning you have another need in your life and you've been trying to get that need met in so many other ways and you need someone to pray with you about that to be able to release that to God. Someone up here would love to pray with you about that. You may have a need this morning for healing. There's so much sickness going around. God loves to answer prayer. He loves to answer prayer because He wants you to know how much He loves you. And someone up here would love to pray with you about that. So as the worship team leads us, we're going to pray together. We're going to sing together. Whatever God is inviting you to do, come to one of these folks and let them pray with you about that.